I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a very special Cheeky Scientist radio show. Today I'm going to talk to you about a variety of things when it comes to your job search. If this is your first radio show, you're in for a treat. I have a lot of information to share with you. I'm going to talk at the beginning about a PhD who transitioned into a job and hear a little bit about the inside story of what a transition looks like. I want to unpack this because many of you have never transitioned before. Uh, I want to demystify the process. Then I'm going to talk to you about The one thing that your resume needs, and it really does need to have this, especially if you've been rejected multiple times and not hearing back after a prolonged amount of time after uploading your resume is a rejection. Uh, You're fighting obscurity. uh, And if you are not successful, right, it's a rejection, even even if it's a passive rejection, it's a rejection. So what is the one thing, if we had to narrow it down to one thing, a differentiator, that can really help you when it comes to your resume, uh, your cover letter, what would that one thing be? It's something that you're taught about in graduate school, in the early stages of graduate school, but we never think to apply it to our job search and employers care about it all the way through to the interviewing stage. So let's jump into a transition story. I'm going to read the words. I'm going to de-identify it. I'm going to read the words of a, a PhD who transitioned in the Cheeky Scientist Association so that you can understand what a transition looks like. This associate writes, I finally managed to write my transition story. I hope it is somehow helpful. Feel welcome to contact me or to comment below if you have questions. For a period in the beginning of my job search, I was searching for posted ads on LinkedIn and company websites. Tried to do some networking, but I was not successful. Sound familiar? The problem was that I was not targeting any specific career companies, or location. Again, very, very common. I was basically shooting everywhere that I thought would have some degree of match with my expertise. Needless to say, this approach was inefficient. Job search is a long and frustrating process, so optimization and systemization of the process are very important. You are not above the process. When I talk like this, it means that I'm inserting something and I'm not reading it anymore, okay? This is uh, an associate's transition story. That's when the CSA, that's the Cheeky Scientist Association approach, guidelines, and network make a total difference. In summary, I did around 20 applications, nine screening phone interviews, six long video interviews with members of different teams at the companies, two on site, and got two offers. That is what I want for all of you, multiple offers to leverage it against each other. And notice how quickly things get whittled down, right? Multiple applications. Now we tell you that. The average application for any job posted online is 525, but don't confuse that. It doesn't mean that you're going to have to write 525 applications. If you do your resume correctly, we'll talk more about this later, it should go from about 20 to 40 to about 9, 10, 11, 12, right around in there, phone screens. That'll get cut in half for video interviews. And then you'll go down to one, two, three different site visits. If you do things correctly, get a couple, couple of different job offers. That's extremely common following the association's process. Okay, back to the writer. One offer came last summer from a startup. I was tempted to accept, to just escape, but ultimately I declined. See, I love that when that shift can be made 
to knowing that the ball's in your court. It has to be a good fit for you. Don't just take whatever offer you get. A few months later, I got the offer from these big companies that I had been targeting since the beginning. The story of the offer I accepted started after I found a contact on LinkedIn, now pay attention here, who had recently transitioned to a job in that company. This person was a very kind, was very kind and offered an informational interview. They were another associate. Uh, we spoke at length about the transition process and important aspects of working in the industry. That one conversation was an impactful eye-opener for me. Set up informational interviews. You probably can't if you're on the outside of the association because you don't have a network. You don't know anybody in industry. So get inside the association or start building your own network from scratch. Obviously, I prefer the former for you. So back to the writer. Also, at this conversation in the informational interview, I was told about a job post that had been advertised for a while. I had seen the post a couple of weeks before, but never applied because I thought it was a bit too much for me. Again, sound familiar? This is the imposter syndrome that we all have. Apply. This job posting, by the way, asked for industry experience. This person did not have industry experience. Don't let that stop you from applying. The writer says, it turns out I was wrong. After the informational interview, I decided to apply. I used the CSA standard model and worked to target the resume. Shortly after, I was invited for a screening interview with the hiring manager and two other members of the team. The interview focused on transferable technical skills where they show to try to get to figure out who you really are. Due to the pandemic situation, the next round was a nine to five Skype virtual meeting. So the site visit was done on Skype. A full day of meeting people. They're doing this virtually now. You need to be prepared for it. Uh, I prepared 20 to 30 questions to ask the interviewers so that I could lead the interview. As expected, the day after I sent each individual a tailored thank you message with comments on the topics we discussed. Always make it specific. Overall, I was quite satisfied with my performance. The week after I had an hour-long interview with HR, I got usual questions. Given my previous uh, time in Germany, I decided uh, that I was open uh, to a salary expectation question. The offer came two weeks later. I start the new position in a few weeks, and I am as excited as one can be. Uh, some lessons learned. See, this is what I love about the transition stories in the association. You learn so much, right? So take some time, uh, you know, be strategic and focused. That's his first point. Except from the beginning, the limitations that will come with your choices. The more narrow you are with your choices, career path, geographic location companies, the smaller number of opportunities. This is not necessarily bad, but you have to accept it to avoid frustrations. Uh, this is an incredible story. It goes on and on, but I want to let you know your story is going to mirror that in some aspects, but of course, it's going to be nuanced. There are principles that apply to every PhD, no matter your background, no matter your situation. Okay, You have to do your part to follow those principles. You're not above the process. And you have to understand too that things will come up. You're, you're a sample size of one. It's going to be nuanced, right? Uh, there are things you're going to face variations of interview questions that you will face. It's not going to be exactly cut and paste from what this writer went through, this associate, or from what any PhD has gone through for that matter. Uh, there's lots of great stories. Uh, another one uh, that I, I wanted to refer to here for those of you who might need a visa. Uh, this person writes, I updated my LinkedIn and resume based on the CSA guidelines. I did network a lot with people in industry. It definitely helped me get many interviews. 
for negotiation, I managed to increase the base salary by 7,000 using CSA techniques. They offered me relocation, two-month accommodation, and a signing bonus. This is what's available to you, but you have to know your value. You have to know the process of negotiation. My visa, since I had a job offer in hand and it was in the perfect location for me based on my husband's work, I expediated my employment authorization, EAD. I also reached out to the congressman and ombudsman to help me to expediate the process. They were really helpful and I was able to get my EAD on time for my start date. This is something you can do. We, this is why in the association we have uh, partnerships with three top immigration firms for those of you that want to work in the US and connections. Uh, with other regulatory bodies, depending on the country that you want to work in. Uh, for example, Germany or Canada and beyond. Make sure that you're, you're hearing these. I mean, I don't know where else you can hear transition stories like these other than the association because it's private people. They open up. This is why I'm de-identifying the stories. This will help you understand what it looks like so that you will be motivated. So you will understand what's in front of you because half of the battle of a job search is having the right expectations knowing that you have to follow a process, knowing that you have to, like the first writer, the first associate said, narrow down your job search for it to be more effective. Okay, let's get to the main topic. What is the one thing you need to put on your resume, as well as your cover letter? That'll make a difference. If you have been rejected or haven't heard back 20 plus times, what is that one thing? I was inspired by a, another article that was written about this, its threshold said about 50, you know, and it said, well, just having a cover letter is the one thing you can do, which I completely agree with. But for a PhD level job, all of you should be writing cover letters. And that's not going to be enough to differentiate. If you're getting rejected a lot, and, and let's say all of the easy to fix things about your resume, like making it two pages or less are done, and you're still getting rejections, and you've, you've had a couple dozen, right, 20 or more, what is that one thing that I see from PhDs? What do they lack? Where, where, and this is an area where you can win in the job market because you've been trained on it. What is the background section of a peer-reviewed journal article for? Some of you might say context. That's correct. Some of you might say significance. That's also correct. But what do you need, not just for the background section, but for every data point, for the story you're telling in an academic Paper, rationale. What is your rationale? Why did you do this? Why do you want this job at this company at this time? Why do you want the job? Do you have a rationale? Or like the first associate, the first writer in the transition story that I told you at the beginning, do you just want to work anywhere? You haven't narrowed anything down. You think that's working to your advantage. That's not. That's the number one thing they look out for, especially from PhDs. Does this person just want to get out of academia? Do they specifically want to work at this company? Do they even know what company they apply to here? Especially for the phone screen. So many people mess it up because they've applied to so many companies. They have to ask a question like, can you remind me who this is again? Great. Interview over. Wasted opportunity. Rationale. Why do you want to work at that? That's why your resume has to be so highly targeted. It can't be a little targeted. It can't have one or two keywords from the job posting. It's going to be highly targeted. It's got to be the, that it's the only uh, resume that that could be submitted for is that job. That's how targeted it has to be. It has to be a resume you could not use for any other job. You got to be using words that that company understands, that company's name in the resume, that company's specific proprietary way of explaining the technical and transferable skills that they need. 
the cover letter. Always have a cover letter. It needs to have rationale throughout. Why are you applying? Hopefully you have somebody you talk to in an informational interview that works at that company that you can mention in the first paragraph. That's strong rationale. That's the kind of rationale you need. Other rationale, what, what have you done in the past that's relevant to what they're looking for? Why are you the best candidate for the job? Why do you want to work at that company over every other company? You have to build a case for it. Now, as PhDs, we think, well, you know, I want to be honest or realistic or logical or literal, right? PhDs were too literal. I want to avoid confirmation bias. I don't want to plagiarize the job posting. What are you talking about? Yes, please plagiarize the job posting. Take the words directly from the job posting, put them in your resume. Okay, there's no, you can't plagiarize a job posting. It's not published. You know, there's no copyright. They want to see those exact words. That's why they're there. They say, here's the words we want to see in your resume. Very, very important for you to do this. You need to have confirmation bias. You sp spend all of acad your academic training trying to avoid confirmation bias, but in your job search, you should be biased for yourself. You want to have absurd levels of confirmation bias. You are the best person for this job. You can do it better than anybody else. You have to sell yourself for it. You do know that, right? It's, what's the problem? All of you, for the most part, especially if it's your first job search, you, you build a case against yourself. You tell yourself all the reasons why you can't get the job. Our, the first writer, the first associate's story that I went through said that. Oh, I didn't think I could get a job at these big companies because of XYZ. I was wrong. You, you go on these uh, wormholes in your, in your brain, right? Where you think of all that you play out the entire scenario in the negative because you're trained to do that in academia for your experiments, right? It's called defensive pessimism. All the things that could go wrong in your experiment to plan ahead, good. Or in the classroom or, or your thesis or whatever, good for that work, but not for your job search. You got to build a case for yourself. Why are you the best person for the job? Why could this one work out? Why could you get hired even if the job posting says you need industry experience and you don't have industry experience? Build a case for yourself, a case rationale. Write down your rationale, why you're the best person for the job on a piece of paper before you even apply. Write down why you want that job, why, how that company wins over every other company in some area, right? Every company has pros and cons. Choose the top pros of that company and build a case for that company because you're going to use that rationale for both yourself and for that company in your resume and in your cover letter. Okay, let's go to the cheeky stack. This is where I look through some articles, what's going on, what's topical online, and what you need to focus on. Behavioral interviewing. This week, we have a very special cheeky scientist webinar for free. If you've never come to a live cheeky scientist webinar, you need to come to this one. It is the first one of March. It's on Thursday, March 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to our website, cheekyscientist.com. Click the webinars tab at the top. You can sign up for free. Make sure you do that. We're going to be talking about interviewing this week. And I'm just going to double check that uh, very quickly to make sure it's right. I'll give you the actual title here so you don't miss out. Go to cheekyscientist.com slash webinars. That's the easiest way to get there. And you will be able to see the webinar. We have a webinar on Thursday coming up very soon. And uh, it's, it's going to be on interviewing. And I'm bringing that up because in the stack here at the top, behavioral interviewing strategies, there's an article that's in biospace that talks about what are the behaviors? I get this question a lot from PhDs, which is why I was researching it. What are the behaviors? And you always want to stay on top of this, right? Things change in a job search. They trend over time. What is being asked today, the concerns of today are different than 
last year, even last month. Why? That's why number one on this list in terms of the behaviors that employers are trying to uncover is adaptability and flexibility. We're in a very uncertain environment. Companies have to pivot. They want to test your adaptability, flexibility. Number two, oral communication. I'm just going to fly through these. Written communication, fact-finding, research, right? Use the basic words. Independence. I know. Can you believe it? Finally, this is in your favor. Autonomy. They want people who can work by themselves at home now. Listening, planning and organizing, process operation. Oh, you guys are so good at methodologies. You got to use that to your advantage. Systemization, risk mitigation, strategic analysis, technical professional proficiency. I almost feel like they took, they took this from my article in Forbes that was for PhDs. The list is so, so accurate. Judgment, motivation. Energy, which is, you know, initiative, attention to detail. Here's a good one. Safety awareness, teamwork, innovation, another place you can win. Delegation, decisiveness, leadership influence, persuasiveness. Again, confirmation bias can be a good thing when it comes to your job search, a company, right? Being able to talk uh, about, you know, if it's not scientific, not following the scientific method, it's not supposed to be objective, being persuasive is okay. All right. So what else do we have here in the stack? I like this article too. It's specifically on making skills, endorsements, and recommendations. You should be doing this on LinkedIn just because LinkedIn rewards you to do it, right? Recommend other people's skills by getting to know them first, asking them what skills they want, talking to them about it. You'll be able to know if they actually have the skills in part, right? Enough to certainly recommend their skills or endorse them on LinkedIn and vice versa. And you can get recommendations for people. The key here is to make them specific. The same kind of uh, results, you know, numerical results, uh, concrete results that you would put on your resume, that's what you want to put in recommendations. And you want to give people recommendations and get recommendations. Ideally, it wouldn't be a perfect swap where if you know, Jane and John and Henry give you a recommendation, you give all of them a recommendation. Uh, you want to mix and match. You, you do want to have similar numbers. Like 10 people have given you a recommendation and you've given eight people a recommendation or 12, right? But there's a variety of people in there on both sides. Don't be afraid to ask for this. Even having a few can go a long way. Social proof is extremely powerful and it doesn't have to be, you know, there's settings on LinkedIn now. So if it's a peer, that's okay. It doesn't have to be somebody who supervised you. Great article here in the ladders, 29 questions you must ask in 2021 job interviews from the perspective of a job candidate, you. I get so many of you emailing us, messaging me, asking, hey, okay, I know you're supposed to ask questions, right? You should never get to the end of the interview where they say, do you have any questions for me? And you say, no, I think you answered all of them. Oh my gosh, amateur hour. Don't do that. Have questions. And it's okay if it's topical. The first one is how has COVID COVID impacted your team? Right? What, what changes have you made at the company? Topical, easy. Here's another one. What's one thing that's key to this company's success that somebody from outside the company wouldn't know about? Smart question. Right? What's your leadership style or, or the person who's going to be directly managing you? Right? Ask what their leadership style is. Very safe question. Don't say management, say leadership. What are a few things I can contribute in the first 100 days to make you feel great about hiring me? Man, smart question. Which competitor in the marketplace are you the most concerned about? This is a great question to ask as a PhD because it's a business-oriented question. 
they see you as somebody who their concern is you don't have business acumen, right? Uh, how has working from home impacted your team's productivity? Another smart, very business savvy question. Ask, uh, show an interest in them. I love this question because it's industry related, but it gets a little bit in the personal space, but not bad personal, just like professionally personal. How did you get started in industry? You know, why did you stay at this company for so long? What do you love about it? Uh, what are you working on that you're excited about? Who are my customers? Yes, say this. Use the word customers. What's the timeline for making a decision about this position? Right? Set expectations up front. If I get the job, how do I earn a gold star on my performance review? I love this because it's a little bit playful. Show that personality. They don't, you know, not going to give you a gold star like you're in elementary school, but you're basically asking them, what's your reward system? What does success look like? When we are working together six months from now, what will be my biggest surprise? All right, it's okay to put it on them. Get them to think about themselves. Like, what, what would you get to know about them after six months? What, 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 what's something you may not know about them just from meeting them once in the interview? Show an interest in them. Let's move on here. Last, last item in the cheeky stack. It's not a positive one, but for those of you that are still in academia, I want you to understand this. This is in the Chronicle of Higher Education. I talked about it in a whiteboard training video, which I do on social media last week. A brutal tally. Higher education lost 655,000 jobs in the last year. Now, this is from US data. It's mimicked in other countries around the world. Uh, including the UK, Canada, everywhere because of the pandemic. Uh, what I want you to understand from this, if you look at this article, there's a nice chart that shows uh, the numbers of workers employed in higher education since uh, the last 20 or so years. Okay. Now, why does this matter? I'm going to pull up the actual numbers here. Uh, so if we look at going back to the year 2000, you know, there's like 3.6 million employed in higher education. That continually goes up, right? It's a linear line, essentially, all the way until 2019. So about, tw again, 20 years. What is most surprising here is that during the 2001 recession and the 2008 Great Recession, there was almost no change. You see a little blip in the 2001 recession, as in more people came, got hired. You tend to see people come in to higher education when the economy is bad. Uh, I remember in 2008, a lot of labs and classrooms shutting down, professors, nothing like we're seeing today. But when you look at this over time, there's like not even a blip. It's just a linear line, even in the Great Recession. However, since the pandemic, the numbers right before the pandemic were, what are they, what are they at here? 4.8, about 4.8 million. And then, of course, 650,000 below that, so just over 4 million. Uh, when you chart this over time, it's a dramatic drop. It's a dramatic drop. And again, the reason I mention is, I mean, this was surprising to me. I didn't realize this. I thought for sure the drop would have been half as dramatic for the uh, Great Recession, which really affected the U.S. and, and uh, many other Western countries. The pandemic, of, of course, has affected everybody. But on here, this is just of the US. So it's a good model because they were affected by the Great Recession in 2008, but there's, there was no drop. And there's a massive drop from the pandemic. Why is this important? 
Why do you care about this? You know, you're seeing tenured professors being pushed out. You're seeing things closed down, the furloughs, everything. I'm, I'm telling you this because this is not something that comes back. This isn't like it's going to snap back. There's, there's no recovery from this because things were so broken. When you have a house of cards that's propped up, right? You know, the, the prophecy scheme, you've all heard this, where it's a couple of professors at the top propped up by hundreds of, uh, if not thousands of postdocs and graduate students. You don't recover from this. That's why they're shutting down the PhD pipeline at both sides of it. They're shutting down people. They're, let, they're not letting people come into their PhD programs because they can't afford them, right? The revenue's gone. Undergrad uh, tuition is down 20% or more, depending on the stats that you look, look at. That's, that's the revenue. It's not grant funding that props up higher education. It's the revenue from undergrads. How do you think, why do you think tuition in many places is over $50,000 a year? Why am I telling you this? It's not to harp against academia. It's like, you got to look at the data, especially this data, and you may better make a plan. You better make a plan to get a job lined up before you graduate. If you're in a postdoc, you better make a plan to get out now. Things are not going to get any better because they're not just stopping PhDs coming in to their programs. They're also stopping tenure. So right, the other side of the funnel, the full-time professorships, they're gone. And on both sides of this PhD pipeline, they're going to keep closing things down until they get to the center, which is graduate students and postdocs. In fact, many postdocs have been cut. Even some graduate student programs, they weren't able to pay the PhD students. They had to get funding elsewhere and prop it up. But this is the kind of revenue that can't just be uh, printed uh, from the government. It can't just be made up for in more grant funding because it's it's dramatic. I mean, 20% revenue at the, the levels that are needed to sustain higher education is, is a lot. So you already knew that most PhDs go to get a job in industry. They don't stay in academia. You got to look at this data, stay up to date with what's going on. Yeah. Get your thesis done, get your papers done, but prioritize your job search first. And that's what I'm going to leave you with. Check out the webinar that we have this Thursday. Stay tuned. For all of our free webinars, go to cheekyscientist.com slash webinars. If you want to learn more about the Cheeky Scientist Association, which has a lifetime guarantee, you get lifetime access to it. We add new materials to the program every single week. Uh, the network continues to grow. No ongoing payments, lifetime access. We will get you hired. Go to phdsgethired.com. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. <laughs> I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's PhDs gethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's CheekyRadio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. 
Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000 plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD. And remember that knowledge is power and your network is your net worth. Oh, 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 oh.